All right, so the first verse of our scripture for today is likely the most misunderstood and erroneously quoted verse of scripture in our world today. Uh, the late pastor and theologian R.C. Sproul, as Brother Lee is a huge fan of, attested that this is probably the most popular verse known by pagans. Probably the most popular verse known by pagans. Anytime a church or a believer or a pastor stands up and calls out sin and says, this is not right, we should not do that, this is the verse they quote, albeit out of context. Judge not, they cry out, right? You're not supposed to judge others. How dare you to stand in judgment of me. You worry about you, and I'll worry about me. Jesus said not to judge me. Today we're going to shine a light and let the Holy Spirit illuminate this scripture so that we can understand what he really means. Did Jesus really say not to judge anything? Don't judge anything. Are we really just to take everyone at face value and say, okay, let them find their own truth? In our postmodern world, it's defined by one truth in our culture today, and this false teaching of postmodernism says this, the only absolute truth is there is no absolute truth, which in itself is a circular argument and garbage. I mean, you can't say the only absolute truth is there is no absolute truth when the absolute truth you just said was absolutely true. I mean, like, it doesn't make any sense, and if your mind's kind of going, it was meant to, like it is, that's how, because it doesn't make sense. That's really where, where this world is. And in light of this pervasive worldview today regarding relative truth, what's true for you is true for you, what's true for me is true for me, how do we understand the teachings of Jesus today? How, how do we understand in the scripture? So let's go ahead and get into it and see what God has for us to learn. We're in chapter, Luke chapter 6. We're going to be in 37 through 42. I'm going to go ahead and read God's word for us today. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they, will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out that speck uh, that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take out the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Let us pray again. Lord God, this is a tough scripture, especially in our culture today. How, how do we rightly understand your scripture as taught? Your word is timeless, and our culture should not change how we interpret your scripture despite many so-called pastors interpreting scripture based on the culture. God, your word is timeless. It is unchanging. You are an unchanging God. How you have always felt about an issue is how you feel about an issue today, and we thank you for your, your consistency. We don't have to guess where you're at. We don't have to, you know, you, you, you give us your word, and it tells us where you're at on these issues. So God, help us to, to understand your word today. Preach through me. May it be your word, not mine, that comes out. And may you open up our hearts and minds. Uh, may we toss everything else off, all the baggage that we bring in today. And may you help us to clear our hearts and minds in order to receive what you have for us. May it enter our minds. May we think through it. And may it enter our hearts, and may it change us from the inside out. We love you. We praise you, and we thank you. And amen. 
So today we're going to see four ways that we should strive to follow Christ in light of today's scripture. Uh, the, the first is you should always strive to be gracious. You should always strive to be gracious. Verse 37, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. We mentioned Jesus' change of tone in the book of Luke uh, last week. He, he went from giving uh, kind of stories and illustrations to direct commands. And now we're going to continue those direct commands today. And as if you remember, we're studying uh, what, what is called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, Sermon on the Plain in Luke. They're most likely the same sermon, just uh, this is an abbreviated version of that. Um, and, and, and so as we continue, we're going to continue hearing him speak directly. And, and we started off uh, today's sermon saying, does Jesus really mean we're not to judge at all? So we're not to judge anything are we not to discern good from evil? Did Jesus mean we're, we're not to lovingly call out sin even? Uh, did Jesus mean to, we're, to accept all things is okay, whether it's sin or not? Absolutely not. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you the answer to that is absolutely not. And we're going to see more about how Jesus goes into this in detail later, but I pray that you understand this is certainly not what this scripture is saying, not what Jesus is saying. So instead, Jesus is commanding believers not to personally judge or condemn according to their own self-righteousness and their own legalistic ideals. Why? Because it is God's job to judge, not yours. You, you don't determine what's right and wrong. God does. So we're just, we're, we are to discern from the Word of God. We, we, we don't tell people what we think. We don't tell them our human wisdom. We don't tell them where we're at on this. We discern based on the words of the Scriptures. I've told people many times, and Pretty sure it's probably offensive to most people, and so I'll just go ahead and say it anyway. Um, I don't care what you think. I don't care what you think about a particular issue. I don't care what you think about homosexuality. I don't care what you think about abortion. I don't care what you think about Jesus being the only way to God. I, I don't. I care what God thinks. Frankly, I don't care what I think. You know, there's certain things I think that aren't biblical, and I'm like, well, I would do this way. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what I think. Doesn't matter what you think. It, it only matters what God thinks, because there is only one true judge, and that is Jesus Christ. It's not you, and it's not me. Uh, actually, we see this in James 4.12. There's only one lawgiver, not you, not me. There's only uh, one judge, right? And he is able to save and to destroy. Wow, that's a tough word. But, but who are you to judge your neighbor? My friends, it's not what you think that matters. I know that's really anti-preacher um, today. Like a lot of churches, they really become a better you, do what you want to do, what you think matters. No, that's not what the Bible says. Actually, it's exactly opposite. What you think does not matter. What God thinks is what matters. There's only one true lawgiver and one true judge, and it's his to judge and condemn. And to my more liberal friends out there, um, this applies to you as well. You know, we, we always think of judgment as legalism, you know, making up all these extra rules, you know, like the Pharisees, and you, you can't do this, you can't do that. If you do that, you're going to hell. Like, that's not... A, and it's not in the Bible, but, but there's just this, this list of things you have to do, list of things you can't do, and if you do the things you're not supposed to do or you don't do these things, and they make up all these rules. We kind of made fun of that a few weeks ago with some of the rules the Pharisees had, like you can only throw it up and catch it with one hand. If you throw it up and catch it with the other hand, you've done work on the Sabbath and you've sinned, you know, just that kind of stuff. We, we always think about that when we think of judging. But here's the thing. Even for the more liberal people out there, they also are judging. They're also making their own moral law, and they're ignoring what the Bible says. That's, that's taking the form of judging as well. 
So, so how you feel about inclusion of sin in our culture, in our world, in our church especially, it doesn't matter. And for you to call something not sin, that God calls sin, is sin. And frankly, is a dangerous sin to call God a liar. To say, no, that's not what it says, and explain it away. I would rather not be you when it comes to judgment. And you stand in front of God and say, I don't agree with that. Let's see how it turns out. Like, that's not how God works. He is God, and he does not care what you think. He doesn't want you adding to his word, but he also doesn't want you taking away. Actually, the book of Revelation gives some pretty stark judgments on that. Actually, if anyone adds to this, well, he's going to get the plagues that are in that added to them. If anyone takes away, he'll lose his spot in heaven, pretty much, is what it says. Now, we know that true believers don't do that. The true believers persevere, that kind of thing. But it's still a, a scary passage, nonetheless. And if you catch yourself taking away, taking away, it's, it's a good chance you're not in Christ. If, you're, if you keep reading the Word and you're like, no, no, I don't think so. Because John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. If you don't obey my commands, what? I mean, the opposite of that's true, too. If you don't obey his commands, you're showing him you don't love him. If you don't love him, you have no part in him. And I just pray that we, may we avoid both extremes of legalism and liberalism. And instead, may we practice biblicism. And that means the word of God carries the ultimate authority. What God says is what stands, not what man says. We're, we're not told that our opinions are going to last forever. We're told the word of God will last forever. Not, not an iota, not a dot will depart from the word of God, but all of your thoughts that are sinful, everything, it'll be gone. It'll be, it'll be destroyed. Those things will be gone. Jesus ends in verse 37 with a command to forgive. This is an extremely t- uh, important teaching that he brings out in this, and I, I, I love this, the way he ends with this, and because it says, forgive and you will be forgiven. Those who do not forgive others are in grave danger. And I pray this is not you if you're someone who struggles with forgiveness. Theologian Leon Morris once said this, a forgiving spirit is evidence that the person has been forgiven. I'll say that again, a forgiving spirit is evidence that the person has been forgiven. Jesus actually told a parable about this in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. And in this parable, there's an unforgiving servant. For many of you who've been around the church, you're like, oh yeah, it's starting to, starting to click a little bit. There's this unforgiving servant, and he owes the king a ton of money. It's, it would take him lifetimes to pay this amount. It is an amazing amount of money. And the, the, the unforgiving servant, he, he comes in front of the king, and he, he casts himself there, and he's like, oh, you know, I, I'll, I'll pay it back. And obviously, the king knows there's no way he can pay it back. But the king mercifully forgives him and doesn't throw him into jail, and he lets him go. Well, that same un- unforgiving servant, we'll call him, you're like, why do you call him an unforgiving servant? Well, there's another servant that owes him money, and it's a very small fraction of what he owed the king. And this, this unforgiving servant, guess what he does that her, the other servant? He throws him in jail and says, he has to pay back every single penny. And if he doesn't do it, so the king hears about this. And is like, wait a second, I just forgave you for lifetimes of money. And you won't forgive this guy for this for pennies for, on, on the dollar of, of what I forgave you? And he says, hey, I'll go ahead and read it to you. So he ends up throwing him in, in prison so that he, until he paid back everything he could. And Matthew 18.35 says this, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's a tough word. It's a tough word. Because here's the thing. God takes forgiveness or unforgiveness very seriously. Because if you are unforgiving to others, 
what it shows is you don't grasp how bad you are, like how, how bad your sin is, that it required Christ to be nailed to a cross, that he had to take on the wrath of God that you deserved on your behalf. And so if you're not forgiving someone else, you don't realize how bad you are, and you think that maybe you're better than, than you were, you know, you're, you're, than, than you are. Because those who are truly saved understand grace and mercy and forgiveness. It is hard. I get it. Completely hard. But the way we get through that is we realize how much we've been forgiven. We, we see the king who has forgiven us lifetimes, for us infinity lifetimes, of what we would need to do in order to be saved, because it's impossible for us to save ourselves. But we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no man can be saved, or no, no man can boast. But then when we see that magnitude, and then we see our brother sinned against us, who's just pennies on the dollar, very, very small amount. Even if it's a big thing, comparatively, it's a small thing. And so how much easier is us for, to forgive that small, even though it looks like a big thing, compared to where we're at? And so if we truly understand how bad that we were, that we were enemies of God, then we see our neighbor who sins against us, even in a, a bad way, even in a horrible way, it still has nothing compared to how we've sinned against our Father. And He forgave us, so we are to forgive others. So, so far we've seen that we need to strive to be gracious. Next, we're going to see that we should strive to be generous. It doesn't get any easier, does it? This, Jesus brings out all the hard stuff uh, in His Sermon on the Mount here. We'll read verse 68. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So we actually discussed the importance of generosity a little last week as well. And, and here we see Jesus expound upon it again. This time he lets us know that those who are generous will receive abundant blessings from the Lord. Not just any blessings, abundant blessings. And, and we see that these blessings are, are pressed down, shaken, running over, and they're given by God in proportion to one's own generosity. Wow, like these aren't short, short-changed blessings. And the imagery that, 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 that Jesus is using here, we, we read this and we're like, what is he talking about? Because we're not in that culture. We don't understand where he's at. But, but this, this, this is about grain. It's kind of the illustration he's using about his blessings. And, and so the way grain would work is you would go and you'd buy a thing of grain. And that grain could have a bunch of air in it. So think about, you know, you have this, that well, in, in our culture we have rubber made, so we'll use that as something because we don't really understand what they, how, how they use. But you have rubber made, you put stuff in it. Well, how much air can be in that? Yeah, a lot. Like, so, so you could sell that rubber made of grain for a, the same price as you could sell a different one that was a lot heavier. You know, you buy your potato chips is by weight. That's a just measure instead of saying it's by, you know, by something else. Now, they do kind of trick you by putting a bunch of air in the top, make it look like there's a lot more in there. That's unjust. But, but the actual weight <laughs> is, I'm like, why is my Doritos bag half eat, eaten? You know, I was like, Kian, did you eat all my Doritos? How did you, how did you seal it back together? You know, how did you do that? Contents may, may settle when shipping, right? That's what they say. There's no way that thing was full, but I digress. I digress a little bit here. But, but, but back then, they could sell the same canister or whatever of, of grain. Uh, there were two side by side, and there could be a huge weight di- di- difference here. One has a ton of grain. Uh, the other one is eh, sparse, but, but they, you know, it's a bunch of air in there. But what, what they would do if they were going to do it right is they would put the grain in there, shake it, and that would settle. They would put some more in there. They would shake it again. They would press it down, and they would get as much grain as they could in there, and that's how God works. God wants just measure. We're not buying air. We're buying grain, right? Like I, when you go buy grain, you don't want to buy air. You, don't, you, want, you want Doritos. You don't want air. You know, same thing. We need to talk to, talk to them about that but because God cares about just uh, 
weights and just measures. Proverbs 11.1 1 says this, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. God loves justice. He's a just God. He's, he cares about measures. Actually, verses like that are all throughout the Proverbs. I mean, it's amazing how many times. Sometimes you're just like, wow, like this is really repetitive. I mean, I could, I could list a ton of verses about how much God cares about that. Jesus is letting believers know that God's not going to cheat you. He's not going to shortchange you. He's not going to, you know, you're going to give, and he's just going to oh, do, do this or whatever. He's going to make sure it's pressed down completely. And our God is a wonderful God who gives good gifts to his children in response to their generosity. Yet these gifts are not limited only to financial blessings. This may take the, the form of earthly or spiritually, or spiritual or, or heavenly blessings. And James says this in James 1.17, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I think sometimes in the conservative evangelical church, like churches like us that are more conservative, uh, sometimes we, we don't talk about God blessing his people. And we kind of struggle with that. And because it's, we're going to talk about that in a minute, it's oftentimes misconstrued and mistaught. But we, what we should not do is give to get. That's the problem. We, we, you're missing the whole point. We can be radically generous because we know we have a God that we can trust who's going to provide for us, that, that he's not just going to leave us high and dry. We know that he's faithful. We know that he is loving. And frankly, we know that he has given us the best gift ever, which we'll talk about in a little while. But sadly, many false prosperity preachers have, have falsely taught this scripture, and many like it, saying, hey, you know what? If you give this much, he's going to give you tenfold back. He's going to give you this, and, and you're going to be abundantly blessed financially. And that just scratches that itching ear, doesn't it? What, what is the idol that Jesus preaches on? Uh, that and hell, there are two things that Jesus teaches on more than anything else. And what is the other one? Money. Yeah. And it just scratches that itch, and it's like, oh, yeah, I love that. And idolatry is what happens. And people, idol, I, like, they are their own idol. We want to be rich. We want to be this. We want to have this. And it just, man, those churches grow like wildfire. It is so sad to see people worship themselves as they listen to these pastors. They're not really pastors, but these false teachers preach. But, but there certainly is an even better return that God gives. It may be joy, peace, a closer relationship with the Father. In fact, it may be occasionally a financial return for some. Some God chooses to be a conduit for him, and they can, he continues to be generous to them so they can be generous to others. But there's no promise of that. This is the Son of Man, didn't even have a place to lay his head. There's no servants greater than his master. Some of us may really, really struggle, and that is part of life. But we know we have abundant blessings from the Lord one way or another. And for us who are in Christ... We know we've received the greatest gift that could ever be given, eternal life. We have received forgiveness for our sins. We have received Jesus Christ, and he's died on the cross for us. And we cannot ask for anything else more than that. That is the most abundant blessing we could ever ask for. So, so far we've seen that we should strive to be gracious, generous, and we should always strive to be godly. We should strive to be godly. I'm going to read verses 39 and 40 again. He told them a parable, can a blind, land, blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So the context of where we're at at this point, there's this huge multitude gathered. If you remember a few weeks ago, if you weren't here, there's this big, big, huge multitude. We don't have any people, but there's a ton of people there. 
And then there's disciples as well. Not just the, the 12 chosen apostles, but there's other disciples, people that are following him. And we see that Jesus has looked at them and been teaching them especially. And he's told them they should love their enemies, that they should now be gracious and merciful and, now, and be generous. And now he moves to tell them a parable to let them know why it's so important to look to go after righteousness. Jesus is asserting that people are watching you. They're watching you. People are following you and looking at what you're doing. So how are we doing when we lead others? When we get to verses 41 and 42, we're going to see sometimes we're blind. Sometimes we don't do a good job leading. And, and, and we see here in verse 39 that we're told that the danger of being blind and trying to lead somebody else. In ancient times, blindness was pretty common, actually a lot more common than we see today. They were, lot, we're really blessed in our culture to have the medicine that we do. A lot of people are, 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 are treated early, and they don't go blind, and, and we're blessed. Back then, they didn't have some of that stuff, so we're a decent bit of blind people in Israel. The problem that w- was there were a ton of pits in Israel. You know, we're in the desert. Let's just think about it. So what do you need when you're in the desert? You need water. So they, were, they would dig pits in a lot of different spaces, places to find a well and to try to dig for a well. And what happens when you don't get water? I mean, you really want to take all that time and fill it back up? Now they just leave it open, even though there was a law. Actually, Exodus 21, 33-34 says, When a man opens a pit or a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restitution. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. Don't you love God thinks of everything? Like, it's just like, wow, that's a very specific law. It's like, all right, hey, don't let people fall into pits. You know, don't let animals fall into pits as well. But what was, what was amazing here is, is Jesus wants to give this idea. These people would have obviously understood this very much so because they lived in that culture where there's pits everywhere. It's like, yeah, I could see if I was blind. That turned out real, real bad if I was just walking down blind. I, you're, you're gone. You're a goner at that point. And he says, well, how, how ridiculous is it for you as a blind man to try to lead another blind man and say, hey, just follow me, man. Ah, and then you both end up in there, right? I mean, you, got, you see a nice little sense of humor Jesus has here. He's like, yeah, I mean, you got to miss. People probably chuckled a little bit like, yeah, that's, that's a good point, Jesus. You're right. That would not be a great idea. But Jesus is using this ridiculous illustration to describe another type of blindness. He's referring to spiritual blindness. And my friends, we can have our vision clouded by our own sinfulness and self-righteousness. As we lead others, we can lead them right into the pit with us if we're not careful, if we're not following Christ, if we're not putting him first. And we're given a warning that a disciple, our disciples will be just like us. And I kind of want to hyper-focus in on this teaching to parents, and frankly, grandparents too, to be honest. I mean, I think we all have, have that role a lot of times in a, in a child's life, even adopted grandparents, adopted aunts and uncles, people that have kids that look up to you and listen to you. If you don't attend church regularly, guess what? Your kids aren't either not going to happen. If, if you use foul language and you curse, guess what? Your kids are probably going to do that as well. Uh, if, if you're unfaithful to your spouse, statistics show your kid is going to be more likely to be unfaithful to their spouse. If you're slothful and lazy and you don't do anything, they're probably going to be the same way. If you're a liar and you don't tell the truth, guess what? A disciple is not above his teacher. And it says, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like who? His teacher. Parents, it's your job. Your job is to follow Christ and be able to be like Paul and say, follow me as I follow Christ. Kids are watching you, and they're going to do what you do. They're not going to do what you say. They're going to do what you do. That's because those who are disciple of their teachers become like their teacher. And parents, would you be happy when you look at your life? Would you be happy if your kid turned out just like you? Where you're at right now, not, not trying to whitewash yourself, not trying to just focus on your positives, but when you look at your entire self, the positives, negatives, you look at everything, and your kid looks just like you, are you cool with that? 
Would you be happy with that? Would that be, oh yeah, I'm glad. Yeah, they, they're spiritually just like you. Sinfulness just like you. Anger problems just like you. Marital problems just like you. You know, eating problems just like you. Whatever it is. Lazy or whatever. I mean, I, I, when I look at myself, do I want my kids to be just like me? I've got problems, right? We all have problems. So are we supposed to just, ex- but we're so good at rationalizing our problems. Well, I'm really good in these areas, right? I'm really good at these things. So we'll just cover this up because, you know, I know I'm bad at this. I don't do well at this. I'm not really good at leading. I'm not, but I'm really good at these things. And so we rationalize and we're like, well, look at all the good stuff I do. My kids, you know, maybe they'll just take that part and they're not going to take this part. That's not how it works, my friends. No, actually the kids, they get this part first. Sin comes natural. Like, let's just be honest. Like, you didn't have to teach your kids to, to sin. They, you know, you know, like they hit their sibling. Like, that wasn't something you taught them. Like, it, this, the sin's natural. And, and kids, they just bend toward the natural things. I, I remember, you know, even like, I, I used to struggle with sarcasm. Sometimes it still comes out. My wife's been really good at helping me be sanctified in that area. But I remember when my kids looked at me and said things the way I would say them in a smart-like way, dude, I was like, oh, when you hear a two- or three-year-old say something like that, you're like, man, that sounded bad, you know? It didn't sound that bad when I said it, but when they said it back to me, I was like, man, that's, this is a problem. And I had to really work on that. God had to work on me in a big way because, I, you know, that would have turned out poorly uh, for our family and for my kids. And so we cannot be okay with just being okay. You know, we, we have to continually pray. And it's not that we can do it. If you could do it, you'd already been better. We've talked about that a lot. Like, we can't do it. But the Holy Spirit can do it in us if we're divinely discontent. If we're like, hey, God, I want to be closer. I want to be more like you. I realize I'm not perfect. I realize I've got some areas that need to be sandpapered, that they need to be sharpened off. Iron sharpens iron. Find a mentor. Find somebody in your life that can help you with something. My wife's been amazing. I've had other men in my life uh, that, that have just, older men that have just really called me out and helped me grow through, through certain issues in my life. Find people like that. Find people that are better than you at something. Say, hey, dude, I know you don't get mad like I do. How do you do it? How do you, how do you, how do you get past that? You know, I, I know, I know the, that you've got a great work ethic. What, what do you do? What motivates you? I know that, you know, find those people. I know that you're really close with God. I know you're in his, his word regularly. How do you do it? Will you help me? Will you be my accountability partner? Will you help me do better? And through the power of the Holy Spirit, he will help you to be holy because God is holy. And we're commanded to be holy as he is holy. What about us who are teachers and preachers of the word? Right? People like me. How are we doing when it comes to the church at leading his people? Are we blind men leading other blind people to fall into a pit? Sadly, many of our preachers today are. That is where they're at. They're leading countless souls into the pit of hell, and they're walking, and people are following them as they one by one go into eternal darkness apart from God in a real place called hell. And I pray hard against those false teachings. And I pray that God's true people hear his voice and they ignore the voices of these wretched teachers and preachers of the false gospel. And I pray that we at Crosspoint, that we always have accountability here, that you all call me out if I say something that is wrong, and that we not ever wrongly influence others or be a stumbling block to them, but may we be built on the word of God. May we strive to be godly. And lastly, you should always strive to be gentle. You should always strive to be gentle. Verses 41 through the first part of 42 Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take that speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? 
So I think it goes remains with it to be seen. I don't have to really explain this. The, a speck and a log are two different sizes. I think that's probably pretty clear. Um, you know, but, but what exactly these words mean in the original Greek? Yeah, you like that, don't you? Look, look, there, there you go. Don't you love how the guy that has the huge log is saying, ah, there's a speck in your eye. You know, he's the one that's freaking out about the speck. And so the Greek word for, for speck there uh, is actually karphos, which means a, a chip of wood or a splinter. Uh, so obviously that's still a painful thing. Sometimes we, we, we explain away the speck because it doesn't sound like that big. But the actual word's more like a splinter. And having a splinter in your eye, that, that doesn't look good. I mean, that, that, that poor guy right there, it doesn't look that big compared to the log, but it probably doesn't feel good. But what about the log? And all this cartoon is hilarious. It actually doesn't give it complete justice because the Greek word for this log is, is dokos, uh, which refers to a wooden beam that is usually the support beam for the entire structure. So, I mean, think about like a wooden beam that is the, that, that, that is the support beam of the entire structure cu- coming out of your eye. Uh, You've got to love Jesus' humor again here. I mean, he's already talked about blind people, you know, trying to lead another blind person. And now we're seeing like a log. Like, I just love his use of terminology here. Uh, a wooden beam. Like, it's absurd to think that this guy with this log could get anywhere close enough to this guy without harming him and take that speck out. Jesus goes on to say in the last half of 42, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. Then you will be able to clearly see, or to clearly to, to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Jesus uses a difficult word here in, in verse 42. Uh, hypocrite. That's a tough one. And we've talked multiple times that Jesus is known to be harsh at times. As we mentioned, Jesus is always kind, and he's always good, but he's not always nice. You all listen. Look at that, man. I'm so happy. You all actually listen. Nobody, you are, you are, you're not actually sleeping while I'm preaching. Makes me happy. All right, it's because we have coffee. Good job, Lee. Appreciate you, you and Trish. Uh, so this is a tough word, though. You know, uh, people that are hypocrites need to hear they're being hypocritical. They need to know that they need to repent of their sin. But no, Jesus is teaching here. He's not saying that that speck wasn't a big deal. He, he, he wasn't saying that that wasn't a big deal. That, that splinter sure hurts a lot, and it causes a lot of pain and suffering. So as an ER physician, I have people that come into me looking like this right here. I don't know if you can see it, but, but right here, there's a piece of metal that is embedded, and you see it blown up there into the eye. And, and we're seeing this in the, uh, you know, in, in the, in the cornea there, right, right above the iris is where we're looking. And it is super sensitive, that area. I'm going to give you a side note, free medical advice. Wear goggles whenever you do sandblasting. Wear goggles whenever you do metal grinding. Not just glasses, goggles that make a complete seal. I have a bunch of people that come in with, with glasses on, and what happens? It still gets up there. So any of you who work on stuff, I won't charge you a copay. There's your medical advice for the day, just for free. Um, but, but these people come in. Go, and go back to that last one there. Go back to the last picture there. Um, these people come in, and, and their eye is, is irritated. And there is just tears coming at warp speed. And you would think that they had a log in their eye because, I mean, like it, it is incredibly painful when they're there. And this is embedded in the cornea. And so what I do is I numb the eye up. I grab a needle. And I have a cotton swab. And I flick that piece of metal out after I numb them up. They're numbed. And then I take it out. And any of you who are really queasy after that, I'm sorry. Um, may want to may, may drink some water or something like that. Um, but could you imagine, go ahead and go to the next picture. Could you imagine me trying to do that delicate procedure we just mentioned, and that's me right there. Hey, dude, I think I got something in my eye. Help, don't worry, I'll help you get it out. Like, could you imagine, I'm in the ER, and I come in, and I've got a, me- a wooden beam sticking in my eye, and I have a needle in my hand, and I have a cotton swab in my hand. I'm like, all right, let's, let's numb this up. And, 
And I mean, could, could you? How much damage would I do to that poor soul in the ER? I mean, you think they'd let me get near them with a needle with a wooden beam sticking out of my face? I sure hope not. I sure hope not. But you know, once my vision's clear, you can go to the next one there. Once my vision's clear, I'm able to take out that speck with accuracy and precision, and the patient's able to leave feeling much better. And, and this is what we are to do, friends. When we see our brother with a speck in their eye, it's really a splinter in their eye. It's not, a lot, of, a lot of pastors will try to explain this away and be like, oh, it's nothing, it's just a little speck. Well, being a doctor that deals with specks, it hurts. It hurts to have a speck in your eye. You don't want something that's not supposed to be in your eye in your eye. You like your eyes just to be your eyes. Like, that's what this is for, just eyes, nothing else, right? I mean, if anybody's cut grass, you get a little pollen in there, I mean, you feel like you're going to die. You know I mean? It's just, just little things like that. But we need to make sure that we understand our own failings first. We've got, we got to understand we got a beam sticking out of our eye. And once we've humbled ourselves, only once we've humbled ourselves for the Lord, can we be used to help somebody else with what's in their eye. Only when my vision's clear could I get that piece of metal out. And only when your vision's clear can you help somebody else with their sins. And I love what theologian David Garland says regarding this. The fault in, is judging others without first judging oneself using the same measuring stick. The order is judge yourself first, and then you can move to help rather than judge another. Harsh judgment obstructs mercy and destroys relationships. So friends, the measuring stick that we should use is what? The Bible. The Word of God is the measuring stick that we should be using as we look at others, as we judge what others are doing, as we discern what is going on. But we need to be humble and teachable by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God personally, first and foremost. Only once we've repented of our sins, of our struggles, our shortcomings, that we've realized that we have a log in our eyes, that we realize our sin, the King has forgiven us from this much stuff. Once we realize that, then we're able to see more clearly around in a gentle and loving manner. James 2.13 says this, For judgment is without mercy to one whom sh who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Our mercy should triumph over judgment. We should be gracious and merciful with those who struggle with sin because guess what? We struggle with sin. And we should have a sober-minded view of ourselves. We shouldn't see ourselves and think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Romans 12, 13 says this, For by, grace, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We need to see ourselves truthfully. The measuring stick of the Word of God. How do we measure up? Not to Bob over there, not to Jim over here, not, oh, I'm better than him, I'm better than him, you know. No, how do you measure up to Christ? You know, and I think any of us, I hope any of us would think the perfection of Christ in ourselves, we realize we don't measure up, and we need to be repenting, and we need to be humble before God and realize that we are blessed to even be able to talk to God. We're blessed to not be smited by him because he is so holy and so great, but yet he loves us, and now he sees Christ when he sees us, the imputed righteousness of Christ upon us. We can be thankful and be humble and realize that others are like us. They deserve that. They, they don't deserve salvation, but they deserve judgment, just like we deserve, deserve judgment, but his kindness is open to them too. It's come to a close We've seen that we should be gracious, generous, godly, and gentle. And he's given us these direct commandments to know that the important thing here is to be humble and teachable. So with all the scripture and teaching in mind, are we to judge others? The, the, the answer is that we are to humbly 
discern situations using the Word of God. We're, to do that, we're only to do that after first measuring ourselves to the Word of God and being humble and allowing the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sins. And only once we've humbled ourselves and repented of our own sins can we approach someone else in a loving manner to help them regarding their sins. Yet I do charge this church to not take a scripture like this out of context like some do and say you're not to judge others. You're not to call out sin on anyone else. You're not to do this because that's unloving. If you have a friend, if you have a church fellow church member, you have somebody in your life that is continuing to sin time and time again, it is hating them to not talk to them about it. Now, you don't talk to them about it until you have humbled yourself before the Lord, and you have asked the Lord to reveal everything that you've sought direction and guidance from the Lord, and probably even from a more mature believer to say, hey, how would you handle this situation? Because it's really hard to handle these situations, because they can come right back at you and say, well, what about you? And you need to be at the point where you can say, yeah, yeah, me. I stink. I am horrible. I do. My flesh just wants to do what's wrong. I'm like Paul, where I I don't do what I want to do, and I do what I don't want to do, and I admit that, but do you? Do you admit that? Do you admit that you're doing what you don't want to do? Are you, do and, and you can humbly, but also with the authority of the Word of God, not your own, not I think, don't ever start off something, I think you need to quit that. Who cares what you think? Let's say God's Word. I was, you know, I was reading God's Word yesterday, and, and here's what it says. It says that you should get, not commit adultery. Well, Jesus went so far to say even the lust after a woman is sin. So you know that? Those pictures you have in your office, they need to come down. That's not holy. It's not okay to have that. Do you have the guts to do that to your fellow believer? Something like that? I hope so, because it's unloving to let them continue in that sin. We don't need to be the police going around just smacking everybody, saying that we need to show grace and mercy. There's definitely a time where we have to give people time to grow and, and show that. But it is not loving to just allow people to throw their lives away when you see that husband or wife who disrespects their husband or disrespects their, their wife, it's not loving to not call that out in a nice way. And again, not in front of everybody. You can do it in a, in a private way and say, hey, you know, I'm not so sure that's how you should have handled that situation. You know, is there something going on? You can ask them to talk about things. But again, not until you realize you're not the perfect husband. You're not the perfect wife. You know, we need to realize that we have our own. And like, hey, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've been there. I've struggled with that. When you lead with humility that way, May we love our fellow believers enough to have those hard conversations. Again, may we not be the police just going around pointing out things. May we show mercy and grace and love to others. But may we also love people enough to humbly humble ourselves first and foremost and deal with our own sin and ask others. Sometimes it's great to ask people, do I have a speck in my eye? Do I have a metal beam or a wooden beam in my eye? you know, what, what's going on in me, and ask people that you know that would have that conversation with you to be humble enough to call it out yourself. What am I doing that I need to not do? You know, I'll ask, I'll ask Lauren. She'll ask me a lot uh, in our marriage. You know, how am I doing as a husband? How am I doing as a wife? Do you have the guts to ask that question? To ask your kids, how am I doing as a dad? You know, what could I do better? What am I not doing well? I mean, that's a tough question to ask because you're setting yourself up for some hard words sometimes, but we need to be willing to do that then, only then, once we've humbled ourselves, can we really help someone else. And I pray that we continue to strive toward being like Christ. We know it's only by the power of Christ through His Holy Spirit that we can. Let us pray. Lord God, in a world that states that the only absolute truth is that there is no absolute truth, we know and we stand on the way and the truth and the life, and that is Jesus Christ. There is only one truth, 
But the one truth is not that there is no truth. The, the truth is that there is only one truth, and that is Jesus Christ. And his word reigns supreme because it is, it, it is his word. Uh, as John 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And how do we know who you are apart from your word? It tells us who you are. It tells us what you love and what you hate. It tells us what you want us to do. And thank you, Lord, for, for giving it to us as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path that we don't have to guess, that we don't have to just go by experience and, oh, well, I experienced this and I've had this happen and so I know that's what I'm supposed to do. No, we don't have to, to, to be led by our hearts that are deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can understand it, as Jeremiah says? But we can follow your word that is a, a lamp unto our feet. And it's your Holy Spirit illuminates us for it, illuminates it for us. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy, Lord. Help us to go out and share the gospel, share the good news with others. Help us to be there for our fellow believers as well and to be willing to humble ourselves first and foremost and be right with you and to be used by you to help sharpen others. As your word says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. May we sharpen one another as a church. May you help our fellowship to grow, to be holy as you are holy and to seek you uh, in a merciful and gracious way for mercy triumphs over judgment. We love you, we praise you, and thank you. And amen. God bless. Have a blessed week, church.